everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Naked Humanity podcast, where we try to figure out what it means to be human in the modern world. Today is episode number 50, and I have on Hugo Droshen, a specialist in political thought. And specifically today, we talk about Friedrich Nietzsche and how his political thought can reflect on the modern world. Now, that's a mouthful, but an important mouthful. Nietzsche is probably a name you've heard before. If you haven't, maybe you've heard the phrase, God is dead. Nietzsche is famous for having said, God is dead. Now, of course, when Nietzsche says this, and we'll talk about this at length in the podcast, he's not saying he wants God to die or he hates the idea of God. He's diagnosing a cultural problem, a cultural happening that I talk about on the podcast quite a lot. And this is what we have discussed as the decline or the death of a singular religious narrative. Up until the 1500s, pretty much everybody across Europe assented to Christianity, a reasonably uniform one, at least much more uniform than we know today. None of the Protestant sects existed at all. And so people's sense of right and wrong, of where truth comes from, of what might happen when you die, of how to make sense of the world was all generally the same. Now, of course, there were differences, but they were rooted in the same narrative, in the same worldview, in the same understanding. Now, that changed a lot. And by the time culture rolled around to Nietzsche, nobody had yet really seen it as being really impactful. But Nietzsche said, wow, look at what has happened to our society. Look at how different we are. Look at what has happened to our values, to our purpose, to how we make sense of things, to our understanding of right and wrong. It has completely changed. You know, we now choose our values or have the ability to choose our values. And this is massive. This is huge. And Nietzsche had so much else to say, and it's very complicated and important, and we'll dive into it in the podcast today. There are very keen insights into how people relate to one another, you know, into competing interests of social groups that reflects on things that we have today, like the resurgence of fascism and identity politics and coping with a you know, quote unquote secular world or a diverse spiritual landscape and effects on democracy. All of these things are very related to what was going on at Nietzsche's time as well. And Nietzsche happened to be really smart and <laughs> to have a lot to say that was important for those times in which can help us understand our times, what's happening to us today as well. So that's what I have Hugo on today to discuss. And he's brilliant. And it's a lovely conversation. I'm very, uh, very excited about it. I'll read you a little bit about Hugo, Professor Droshin, before we get going. Hugo Droshin is a political theorist and historian of modern political thought with interests in continental political philosophy, democratic theory, liberalism, and political realism. His book, Nietzsche's Great Politics, came out with Princeton University Press in 2016. It was reviewed in the TLS, New Statesman, Times Higher Education, Notre Dame, Philosophical Reviews, Dissent, and the LARB, and featured in interviews with Vox and the Irish Times. It was selected as one of Choice's Outstanding Academic Titles for 2017 and long-listed for the Bronislaw Jeremek First Academic Book Prize. Hugo's current research is on elite theories of democracy and their impact this thinking had on the development of democratic theory in the U.S. and Europe after World War II. He has a book entitled Elites and Democracy under contract with Princeton University Press. I'm really looking forward to that book. I think this is all very important. And, you know, on this podcast, we spend a lot of time unpacking the human condition, unpacking religion, unpacking psychology. Not often do I get to put this in a political, con political context and especially to see the overlap between these spiritual, what we might call spiritual and political movements, conundrums, phenomena, what have you. So this is a fascinating podcast, especially if you're into politics in today's world and trying to make sense of, you know, everything that's unfolding in this you know, kind of baffling era. So thank you so much for tuning in. I have links to everything in the show notes. You can contact me or Hugo if you have any questions, and we would love to hear them. So thank you so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is historian Professor Hugo Droshin. Okay, hi, welcome Hugo. 
Hi, thanks for having me on. Hi. Yeah, thank you. I was just giggling because we're going to talk about Nietzsche today and Nietzsche is uh, one of my favorite topics of conversation. I don't expect that's a particularly common thing. Is Nietzsche also like fun for you or having worked on Nietzsche for ages, it's sort of, you know, work, play sort uh, of thing? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Yeah, I guess it's true. You kind of, you know, as an academic, you did a, you did a PhD, you get your first book and it's true, then you want to move on. But, but I think, you know, Nietzsche now is so, he's so kind of enthralling that there might be an element that becomes, well, there's the academic work or the scholarly work and that gets manifested in one thing, i.e. like a scholarly book, but mm. there's all the rest. Um, yeah. So that never goes away. And in any case, um, as you're probably more than aware, Nietzsche never seems to be particularly far from any kind of news anyway. So it's always kind of there. No, so, so no, I don't have. I don't have that kind of burnout of, of Nietzsche and I don't want to never want to talk about him again. No, not at all. And, and I know that in the future, it's something that I'll come back for in terms of my own work also in the future, but try to do a bit of different things in, in the meantime also. So are, are you, you're in history, you're a historian technically? I'm in, I'm in the politics department. Politics. There's this slightly strange thing of doing the history of political thought where sometimes you're caught between two stools. Um, so, but I'm currently in the politics department. Yes. I see. Okay. Yeah. I'm in a religion department where you're basically okay. allowed to do whatever you want. So, um, Good. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. That's wonderful. And I have given a little bit of a primer to listeners yeah. on, on Nietzsche. Um, but yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us, you know, usually I think in popular culture, Nietzsche is sort of depicted as a, as a bad guy. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe that perception and why that might be wrong and why, why you like him? Yeah, I think where well, it goes both ways, because I also have, you know, what is the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind? There's all these kind of like, there's the Nietzsche, who's this, yeah, that the teenagers, especially in American culture, that, you know, people associate with them and they're anxious and, and, and whatever. Um, so in popular culture, I think you get, a, you get a bit of both. You get the kind of like Nietzsche angst kind of self, but like the positive, which is a lot of self-creation, kind of be yourself. And then it's true, obviously, that politically it often kind of gets recuperated by by certain more extreme and obviously right now the most the kind of most prominent example of that is the alt-right richard spencer who claims to have been red pilled by nietzsche um so that so that often comes out so i think you get you it's 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 funny you get it you get a bit of both but the, it's true that the politics often seems to fall onto the bad side um yeah, and I think that was one of the reasons. I mean, I don't know, for a lot of people, I think when they read, perhaps this was your experience too, when you read Nietzsche for the first time, for me, it was just intellectual fireworks. I remember I was in a, in a library. I was, an, I was an undergraduate in Trinity College, Dublin. And I remember reading whatever, and I don't even remember exactly the text, but it was just kind of fireworks. And so much so that I had to actually get up and, and leave the library and go for a walk to kind of clear out. It was just so taking. And then from that point on, it was, it's always really stayed with me. But the question, because because I was really taken by Nietzsche, and I think there's always this enthralling element. It's kind of very intoxicating, um, the writing, and that has its difficulties and problems too. And there's often a sense that, oh, you know, you get the sense that Nietzsche writes for you. He's writing for you individually. So it's very hard not to respond to that type of call. And I'm probably guilty of that as much, much as anyone else. But it then it did because I was also interested in politics. It's like okay, well, so like there's all these amazing insights clearly into psychology, into history, into what's going on in the world. What exactly is going on with Nietzsche about politics? And that then became my kind of the line that I wanted to pursue because I read all the books and where I was trying to find the answer to that question, and none of them really satisfied me. So, so it, that led me in a certain direction. It led me in terms of the work that I've done. Um, for Nietzsche, at least for now. And then anyway, then and part of it was also to try to respond. I mean, Richard Spencer kind of came about after I'd done this work, but it's how it often comes up. And, and either you seem to have the choice that either you say, you know, Nietzsche is just a philosopher, he's not interested in politics, so you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Or the option is, oh, it's politics and it's bad, and it's the bad Nietzsche or whatever. And I was like, well, is there something, you know, is there a link between the two philosophy and politics that doesn't on the one hand, say there's no politics on your hand for into the bad politics. And that I think was the work that I was trying to do at least. Right. And I, I deeply appreciate that about your work. And I actually, uh, while I was doing my master's degree, read, read a bunch of Nietzsche and surrounding thinkers. And we always talked about it. We were scholars of religion and if scholars of religion always kind of 
uh, knew that scholars of religion liked what Nietzsche had to say, or at least thought it was important. But uh, there was one uh, political scientist in our class who the whole time was just appalled that we were considering reading Nietzsche in this way. Um, but also upon engaging it, it was like, oh, okay, I sort of, I sort of see this. And I think I mean, Nietzsche is often associated with anti-Semitism, which is a part mm-hmm. of, I think, your association with Richard Spencer. But that was sort of given to his work after, right? That wasn't his work. It was sort of laced on top of it or through it by other people. Um, I think the honest answer to that is there is a bit of anti-Semitism in it, at least in the early work. Um, whether that's his own, whether he's just kind of reproducing certain um, stereotypes and certain prejudices of the time. And the certain prejudices of the time might go, at least certain people have made the argument that you see that throughout um, throughout his work. But certainly at the beginning, there seems to be quite a bit of anti-Semitism, whether it's his own or whether it's under the influence of Wagner, who was a notorious anti-Semite. Um, that's unclear. And I think he's partially guilty to that. But it's true that over then time, you know, he himself describes himself as an anti-anti-Semite. Um, and, um, and, you know, then when he's talking about anti-Semitism, it's like everything, there's a bit of subtlety. I think the only ones he just dismisses out of hands actually, actually are the English, where he just thinks they're completely naturally uninteresting. But most of the other people, there's always like those different elements. So there's some in his account, if you can use this type of language, you know, there are good Jews, there's bad Jews, etc. Some of these fall back into stereotypes, but he certainly had, he, he certainly included some of them in the vision that he was projecting as to what he wanted to happen. So his ideal kind of good European, the good European of the future, was meant to be literally a marriage of two different people. One of them was the Prussian kind of military aristocracy on the one hand, and the other one, the European Jew. That was what he thought was the future. Um, and that it was because on the one hand, and so this is where you could say, is this anti-Semitic, yes or no, and, or it falls into stereotypes. On the one hand, you had the military officer who was, could command and was disciplined and that was good. And then on the other hand, you had the kind of the European Jew was international, um, obviously kind of anti-Christian also in the way that Nietzsche was anti-Christian. But that was, and he literally wanted to bring those two groups of people together. And that, and often, and also what he meant by that is that they would reproduce. Um, and that was his ideal future, which you can see straight away is very, very far than any type of purity or anything like that. So, he, so yeah, it depends how you parse, parse that out. And of course, what we do know afterwards is that, you know, because he goes mad in, 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 uh, in 1889, at the beginning of 1889, and we know that then his sister kind of takes over and she is a, a definite slant in terms of what she, how she wants to present it. Um, and she compiles that edition, the critical, that edition, controversial edition, we all know the will to power. But one of the, um, and she was married to a, a virulent anti-Semite, Bernhard Foster, who w- had set up an Aryan colony in, uh, in Latin America. I never exactly remember it. I think it might be in Paraguay. It still exists, actually. The name Germania still exists in that area, and it's a completely mixed kind of area now, ironically, and quite. But the two of them, Nietzsche and his sister were quite close when they were younger. They fell out over that marriage when he was like, you can't marry this guy, he's a complete anti-Semite, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, 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 no. And they had, a, they had quite a falling out. They still kind of spoke with one another, but they, the relationship went really cold after that, whereas before they were quite close. So obviously, so, you know, and he had denounced this, 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 his brother-in-law, basically, for being an anti-Semite. So, you know, there are certain powerful elements to there. And then obviously, then you get the end when his sister takes it over again and she tries to recreate this myth. Um, she welcomes, you know, Hitler to the Nietzsche archives. She set up in Weimar, gives him a walking stick. So there's this type, of, and then you get associated with all this kind of Nazi, this Nazi thing. But, but obviously, when you deep, you deep down in Nietzsche, it's like like a lot of things. It's much more subtle. I think there's strong anti there's strong anti anti-Semitic claims at least, even though he seems a bit kind of maybe falling into prejudices, reproducing prejudices at the time, and also then specifically linked to Wagner at the beginning. Cool. That is. Very elucidating. Long. Yeah. Sorry. No, <laughs> that, I think that that's extremely important. And, and we all like uh, stories are important to, to tell on the podcast. And Nietzsche, I think so many people don't even like we have we don't have a nuanced understanding, but it's a figure that we have at least a little bit in our public consciousness. So I think that detail is important. But that being said, uh, what is it then that is and feel free to elaborate forever because this is a very big question. <laughs> what what is it about Nietzsche's view on politics that is important for us to understand today? Why does it matter? 
Yeah, I think there's a, a number of different ways to kind of approach that. I think the, the, the first is, is surely we're interested in Nietzsche because we, 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 we think that he kind of captures and gives us certain insights into the world we still live in today. I think, you know, these ideas about the death of God, resentment, et cetera, still seems to capture the world and even elements of politics that we have today. So then from, if, that is, if that's their starting point, then trying to figure out then what Nietzsche if Nietzsche said anything about politics, what were his kind of insights, what were his developments, is quite becomes quite important. Because otherwise, um, if we don't do that, then it becomes the other thing, which is that, well, it just Nietzsche's politics can just be anything. And then you fall back into the problem, well, it could be, yes, and he's been interpreted lots and lots of different ways, for sure. And, you know, we tend to think of, you know, the bad far-right Nietzsche, but at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was much more, it was often Marx and Nietzsche that were put together as like Marx gave you the structural understanding of the world and Nietzsche then gave you this will to power to, to kind of rise up and overthrow the bourgeois order. So it was considered much more left-wing and you have these wings that go um, over the course of time. But if you don't, so on the one hand, is, it, is there ways of linking his, his clear insights that we all recognize with an understanding of politics? Um, and the other hand, in doing so, not letting the kind of the coast clear for any types of kind of um, interpretations, including the types of ones that we get from the Nazis or Richard Spencer's, if we don't think that's true and valid, then we have to go on that terrain, try to see what Nietzsche is saying about politics, precisely to push back on on an not an empirical basis, but at least on a philological kind of reading of Nietzsche. Uh, kind of a, a, everyone has their interpretation, but Nietzsche does say certain things about politics. So, it, you know, that is a starting point that we can kind of build on and see exactly where that brings us. Sure. So um, you mentioned these things he says about politics and you mentioned resentment. You mentioned the death of God. Uh, perhaps I don't I don't I find the death of God particularly important. But again, that's a, mm. my religion. Well, I, I pers- that's my religion perspective. But, you know, what did uh, what was this idea and, and why is it so important? Yeah, and I also agree. I think this is one of the most fundamental things. The, the idea is to say, okay, perhaps, you know, you have to put Nietzsche back in his context. His late 19th century, as we know, he's a son of a son of a pastor. So there's a strong religious kind of um, influence basis there. And his basic claim is to say that, you know, the whole world, or at least that kind of Germ- Germanic European world at the time was organized around certain organizing principles, which had to do with Christianity and certain understandings of Christianity. And that that had kind of fallen away over time. And therefore, the kind of the, the unique rooted transcendentalism that was offered is gone. And now you have lots of different interpretations, lots of different ways you can think about life. And that's the challenge of, of you know, 20th century or after the 20th century onwards, is this diversity, whereas before it was much more anchored and people that just shared, a shared, although interpretations obviously deferred, with a shared kind of moral understanding of how people should live and what type of lives they should have. Once that foundation is eroded and starts giving way, then all these other questions that had been kind of put to bed, as in what type of humanity should we be? Because we had an answer with Christianity, we should be Christians, right? That was the answer. No we debate as to what we mean by that, but we want, we're meant to be Christians. Once that's gone, well, what, <laughs> what are we? I mean, it just completely, notably opens up the question again. And I think that's what Nietzsche was trying to deal with, the, with, um, with, the, death of, with the death of God. Um, and even and there's one step further because we also talk about the death of God, but there's, a, there's another kind of element to it, which is the shadows of God, which I think are, is very interesting. Where the idea is that even though God is dead, i.e., people no longer believe in God or this transcendental kind of thing that's meant to unify us, we still continue to live as if God existed. So we continue to end that life that we had before without the kind of foundational basis for it. And it's those types of people, I think, that Nietzsche really wanted to kind of needle and say, look, you got to think about this more seriously. You can't just go on as if nothing happened. He really, he wanted to challenge those people. And he said, because there's an opportunity here. There's a danger, of course, but there's an opportunity. And there's an opportunity perhaps to have other types of lives outside of just the one type of life we've had so far. We have more diverse types of lives. And some of those types of lives may be richer or haven't been able to express themselves to the maximum possibility because they're being constrained by Christian morality. Um, and so that was something he really wanted to push forward and try and push people to try to explore more with all the dangers that went with it. And I think that's the one thing that's important to keep in mind with Nietzsche. I think he, he did have this kind of view that, quite an elitist view probably, is that this type of self-creation was probably available to a certain group of people, but not to everybody, and that it was okay for you know the majority of people to continue as if god 
you know, still existed. And maybe they still believe in God, and that's fine, but not everybody did. And so it's the classic definition, the classic distinction you get between, you know, the masters and the slaves, or the master and the herd, right? The herd, if they want to continue living these types of lives, fine, maybe they still believe in, and it suits them, and it's good for them. But they cannot say that they are the only type of life possible. There are other types of lives. And now that God is dead, we can explore these. And, um, and maybe lots of wonderful things will come of that that hadn't been possible before. That's what we should try to explore. Yeah, I, I find that to be particularly important. I think of one major misconception about Nietzsche is people think he is against God or personally trying to kill God, but that's, that's not the case, right? It's, it's more of a diagnosis. This is something that's happened to our culture. And I spend, I spend a lot of time personally thinking about the implications for spirituality. I have spent less time thinking about the implications of politics, right? And so what, what does that, how does that influence say the way Nietzsche thought about politics or what he thought, right? Cause he was sort of predictive what he thought might happen or should happen. Yeah, so that's that's a big question. And I think there's there's a bit of creativity probably that needs to go into there too. But if you do follow the line about, okay, well, the distinction between this master and master and slave morality, which is one of his bigger kind of interpretative points also. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it's not that he wants to kill God. He thinks God has died and he's been killed. He does have like, in Zarathustra, he talks about the man who killed God, right? And it's not him, it's, it's other people. So, um, but I think, and continuing what you mentioned here about the diagnosis, I think that master and slave morality gives you the ability to diagnose, and he used it to diagnose the society within he lived, um, and then on that basis try to think, well, what would what would a society based no longer on slave morality or ma- slave morality or herd morality, but instead based on master morality, what would that look like in the future? There are historical examples of more master morality type of societies, the ancient Greeks being some. Um, examples, obviously, the Renaissance, Italy. So um, if you take the history as being sometimes, and it's always a question of degree rather than absolutism, sometimes mass morality dominates a bit more, sometimes it's slave morality. He thought, he looked at Bismarck, for instance, you know, the greatest figure, political figure of his time, completely and utterly. I mean, Nietzsche's whole productive life is, is maps itself perfectly onto Bismarck's realm. And he himself participates in the Franco-Prussian War, which is the basis then of, of German unification and German um, great power. And he, but he describes that as basically, you know, all the stuff that's related to, to, to Bismarck, even though it, Bismarck calls this, you know, great politics or power politics. It's actually state morality and petty politics, nationalism, philistinism, fragmentation of Europe. All these things are, exa- are examples of slave morality. Therefore, what would rather a master morality politics look like. And he does suggest these things. And the good Europeans we mentioned earlier on are example of these people who are meant to lead this type of great politics, where instead of philistinism, mediocrity, nationalism, you have instead of Europeanization, high culture. Um, there is questions about the role that democracy plays in this. That's, that's a, also quite a, it's very interesting. And, and more subtle, as one would expect with Nietzsche, than the usual kind of presentations that you get in it. So that's the vision he, he seems to, to offer. And it is linked to the death of God, because that reopens those questions. The idea being that, you know, this new European construct, which aims to high culture, might open the possibility to new types of forms of existence and life that weren't able before. So that's how it links you know, death of God, slave master morality, to analysis of his own time, to then what the future might actually hold. Mm. And so would, to put that just in a, in a grounded context, would Nietzsche have been excited about the idea of a European Union, right? Would he have wanted states to aggregate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, and that's kind of one of the questions I try to explore a bit in the book. Um, he, certainly, Euro- European unification was certainly something he was very interested in. And he did hark back to some of the examples of it. Like, I was like, well, you know, Napoleon, there were these certain moments of it too. Um, and there is a broader history of which type of European Union um, there, sh- there should be. Um, whether the EU as we have it today would have been exactly his idea, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think the type of high culture he was advocating is necessarily the aim of what um, the EU is today, and which seems to be at least in its foundational ideas, more to do with economics, et cetera. But, but, but there are, you could see how there are elements that he would have welcomed. For sure, it's coming together. Yes, that was something positive. The, 
I mean, the idea also, because this was very prominent in his time, the nationalism of Germany, for instance, that the EU has been able to kind of channel that at least or, or kind of keep it under wraps to a certain degree, I think he would have welcomed those types of things. Um, and whether, you know, whether, because then there is a question, what is the relationship between philosophy and politics? Um, it's, there's a relationship between the two and Nietzsche, but it doesn't mean that, what, that they're the same. So often I think the idea of Nietzsche is that a certain type of politics will lead to or will give the possibility for a certain type of philosophy. It doesn't, it's not predetermined, but in certain types of political foundations allow certain types of philosophy or culture or whatever you might want to call it um, to come about. And so even though the EU doesn't necessarily a, has that as its actual aim, does it allow for kind of more European creation, more European exchange? For instance, the Erasmus scheme is very, very important. I think he would have completely naturally welcomed that. Um, and academically, research-wise too, you know, we all know the European research grants are some of the biggest things now. Whether it's led to European high culture, it's, it's hard to it's hard to judge, but there are certain elements of it for sure. I think that he would have welcomed. Hmm. I am curious about his sort of injunctions to be you, to be your own individual, to overcome yourself, right? Be your overman. Um, how this sort of focus on individualism would mesh with something that seems nationalistic, right? There's a drive for unification on one hand, but also a drive for individualization. How do those sort of sit in the same space? Yeah, I think, yeah. So Nietzsche is quite critical of nationalism. He's really critical of nationalism in his time and with Bismarck. Um, so, so that's for sure. And, and that injunction to, to, to be yourself um, is there, but going back to what I was saying earlier, I think that injunction doesn't necessarily, I don't think Nietzsche meant, thought that this was going to apply to everybody. Um, so, um, and so the question goes back to, yeah, that relationship between the, the, the structure and the content, which is, does the political structure allow certain groups of people to try to develop and be themselves in a way they might not have been able to do so beforehand? That's maybe kind of an empirical question today when you look at the different systems. Um, but it's certainly true, you know, the, the EU, of course, there are nationalist forces operating within it. We, you know, we both work in a country where that seems to have taken over slightly too much um, in terms of what's happening in Brexit um, at the moment, where it seems very nationalistic um, driven. And it would be, um, obviously, then that causes challenges to the European kind of order. But, um, <clears throat> but then, you know, on, on, on the continent, is there that possibility for, has the EU opened up a possibility that wasn't there perhaps beforehand for people to develop and become who they are? Maybe. I think that's hard to say exactly, but maybe it has. And if it has, then that certainly seems to be going in a direction I think Nietzsche would have wanted to go. Hmm. So this, uh, then when we look at the rise of fascist movements throughout the 20th century and sort of what we might see as a mirroring of that um, today, that's also reflected in this uh, critique of the nationalistic mentality. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you can, you know, some people have tried to draw, okay, well, Bismarck's Germany had a to Nazi Germany, et cetera, et cetera. The militarism that starts with Bismarck, which isn't really there actually beforehand, before Germany was a land of you know, poets and scholars, right? And all of a sudden, it's, it's the militaristic Germany that's taken over. And Nietzsche is very critical of that precisely, of saying, look at the move, who do, we, who do we consider to be German? What was the stereotype of the German beforehand? And how has that changed? Um, and yeah, and I think, I think you had, a, a, in our previous kind of exchange, you had um, you'd suggested, well, um, you know, is there a link between fascism, for instance, and the death of God? Is, is fascism and these types of things, as they've often been called secular religions, right, that they compensate for, for what's been lost? And abs that seems absolutely the case. The transcendentalism that was there that's been lost with the death of God, it's replaced by other things, the nation, nationalism, fascism, or whatever. Um, and Nietzsche, you know, although obviously he, he never experienced the 20th century, the, the uh, the basis for his critique and his analysis is there through everything he says in terms of his critique of slave morality and the politics of his day. And obviously, the, his whole aim was to say, well, you know, the death of God, the answer to that is not to try to go back in time and try to recreate a God, a kind of a transcendental, like top-down kind of God. The challenge now, and that, that, that famous scene in, in, um, in the gay science where the man-man comes into the square with a lighted torch and ask, where is God? Where is God? And everybody asks. 
everybody laughs at him and then he leaves disappointed. It's because, and then you have, you have this long passage afterwards. He says, well, our challenge now is we have to create, we have to become our own gods in a sense that we have to, we have to give ourselves these new values and we have to figure out what are the, what's that, what is that going to be? So I'm saying that uh, because instead of falling back into fascism, the idea, the, the thing was, well, can we move, can we move forward? Um, and that's a, plur- it, and that's, I think we might say, well, is fascism a new type of value? Yes, it is, um, clearly. But then the question is, is it more on the side of slave morality or master morality? And clearly, the idea of Nietzsche was that this was going to be much more pluralistic, um, which is not really, I think, what you get with, and there's lots of different elements, also fascism of Nazism that you can critique, the purism of, Nash, of Nazism that Nietzsche had no time for. Um, that was the wrong direction to take it. It was going back in time, falling back into resentment towards time and what had happened, whereas Nietzsche's injunction was to try to go forward into something new, to look at new horizons. That's the kind of, or, um, the kind of phrases that he uses. Um, but that's very difficult, and um, it's very demanding. And so you can see the temptation is always to go back. And it's a temptation we see that's coming back again today. That's probably taken over slightly your own politics at the moment, too. Right. This, uh, this search for this thing, for these sets of values, for what have you, right? Where is God? There is a sense in which, yes, an individual you know, might choose to say, well, you know what? I don't need that. I can create my own values, what have you. But that's not uh, sustainable for millions of people, right? For large groups yeah. of people. And I, I think that's sort of what we're seeing. So there's, an, there's a sense in which we cannot all of us collectively realize a project that he has said we must do. And we still haven't been able to find something that will satisfy us in the wake of the death of God. Right. Yeah. But I think the way Nietzsche thinks about it in the future is that there'll probably be two different spheres of existence. As I said, kind of earlier on, you know, he, his point was not to say we need to completely and utterly destroy Christianity for his own time. The point was to say that we want to push back in Christianity to its absolute disclaims. To say that to say it's not the only morality possible. There might be other moralities on the side that might be worth exploring too. Um, and so the majority of people, I think Nietzsche would have been quite happy for the majority of people to continue living their lives that way if he, if they thought that was the best um, way to go. And it's not just if he, if they thought the best way to go. He's that he he did I, the way to think about Nietzsche is that he thinks that both have a role to play. There's the kind of stabilizing factor of having those who are more associated with the herd, if you want to continue with that language, and the kind of destabilizing factor for those who are going to try to, um, to create something else. But you need a bit of both. They're kind of mutually constitutive in a certain way. You can't just have one or the other. If you have one, it's too stable. The other, it's unstable. So the real challenge, I think, um, that Nietzsche starts to see um, and does try to articulate through certain ideas like the pathos of distance, for instance, is what is the relationship between those two groups going to be in the future? That's the real challenge. Um, and can one, can they both come up, can they both find a way of, of kind of living together and then offering something to one another? Um, you know, there, there's that still that fundamental idea perhaps with Nietzsche that, oh, it's only as an aesthetic phenomenon that life is worth living. These new, these this new kind of elites of the future, this new cultural elite, perhaps they can create new types of justifications for existence that would satisfy it, or maybe not. But but the challenge of politics there seems to be figuring out what the relationship between those two groups is going to be, and that's not you know it's not too far to from a lot of the challenges that liberal democracies kind of face today. There's lots of different groups who want lots of different things, and the challenge is how to find make sure they are able to coexist in a way that. They're all satisfied, more or less, and doesn't deteriorate. And, you know, that's exactly the type of challenge I think we're facing again today. Nietzsche had his own perspective on it, and he thought, this is what's important to try to maintain from it. But the challenge as such, I think, remains the same. And I think Nietzsche was, was one of the, actually the first persons probably to see it from the perspective of the 19th century going forward. Right. So the challenge, I, I think what you're saying is the challenge was perceived. He perceived it then, and it has changed forms but has essentially the challenge has remained the same yeah yes how do you how do you make different groups who have different values kind of able to to coexist um in in you know not necessarily harmonious whole 
um, I mean, co- conflict is not necessarily a bad thing, right? And and Nietzsche's on probably on that side, a, a bit of tension between different groups. That that's the idea. A bit of tension is productive, and that's good, and keeps everybody on their toes. Uh, yeah, he he had a tendency to divide into two groups of people: the you know the the masters or whatever you call it, and and the herd. Today, we probably want to expand that out much more, but but the fundamental tension between the two, I think, is there. He had a view as to what what that would serve. Not everybody has to agree with with that today, but but I think fundamentally, yeah, that tension that tension is there. That is the tension our societies face because that's it, that's naturally going to come about after the death of God, when you're going to have multiple uh, pluralism in essence, where you're going to have multiple kind of views as to what the good is and what is morality and what type of life people should be leaving. Then you're faced. That's that's the consequence of the death of God, and then you're faced with these types of questions and these types of political questions with Nietzsche in his own time. Was, were, was trying to identify and trying to give certain answers to, and also, I think, especially give um, the analytical tools to try to understand what was going on. And through those, um, being able to pinpoint the dangers precisely of falling back into the old, wanting to fall back into the old world, which was always going to be a very uh, coercive and violent demand because that old world was gone. So you're reimposing the old world on a new and trying to point towards what the, what the new world may be able to offer that would then exist in the old world. That's very interesting to me. That's something actually that I'm constantly doing with my audience, and they're probably sick of me talking about it. Uh, but I'm, I'm constantly saying there's no going back, right? And mm-hmm. even attempts to recapture what once was will be happening in this context in which things have become radically plural, right, have become in a sense, relativized, right? And you have to choose your own values, even if you don't want to. Um, and that's, that's really, I think that that's really hard. And that's fundamentally unique uh, that we, even if you don't want to choose your own values, you have to. And I think there's maybe something that's inherently stressful about that. Even We don't think about it today because it's just a natural part of our condition, but it is kind of new. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's probably right. I think Nietzsche would be slightly more cynical than you and say, well, most people just go along and do what other people tell them to do. And, you know, that's how they live their lives and that's fine. I think, you know, there are other people who do ask themselves these questions. Um, And I think he would like to say, well, that's a good thing. And then maybe these people are going to come up with different answers that we haven't heard before. Obviously, you know, we don't need to be Nietzsche to think that, you know, a lot of them are not going to be that interesting. But, you know, some of them might come through um, that weren't thought of before. And I think clearly our societies have changed quite a bit from his own time. You, mm. I don't know if for the better or for the worse, but there, there's definitely a lot more kind of going on and there lots, seems to be a lot more options today than there might have been in his time. And, and just from a perspective of, of diversity, that's um, hopefully a good thing. Yeah, I definitely agree with the Nietzschean perspective that most people will just go along and not actively question you know, pre-given values or what have you, but I think they're, they even, they occur in this context, right? Yeah. Um, they occur in a context in which you know that other people believe other stuff, right? You, you know that other people uh, have different ideas about what's, what's good and what's bad. So um, I see that as sort of fundamentally altering, you know, every, everything that we do, but it's impossible to know if it would have been better if we all assented to the same narrative, you know? Yeah. Um, like you said, no, we don't know if it's, it's different. We don't know if it's better. Yeah, we don't know. And your point, I think, is well taken that it, it's obviously a kind of a, an, an extra stress that perhaps didn't exist before. It puts a certain amount of pressure. Um, and I think, you know, I think you, there is a realization of that in Nietzsche. It's like, yeah, you know, the things have changed and things are going to be more difficult. Um, and for the majority of people, maybe that will be more difficult. Um, but it would be it would be a shame not to not to take this opportunity. I think that's the main. That I think has that has to be one of the points. We'll take this opportunity because it hasn't been offered before, and maybe we can try something new. And we don't, you know, the whole thing with Nietzsche is that well, we don't know what that new thing is, and obviously we can't predetermine what that new thing is going to be because that would be counterproductive. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's there, and and the point is to try to to, to seize it. Um, and also, I think the important thing is. You know, because I think you mentioned individualism earlier on, is that Nietzsche, there's often this view of Nietzsche that this is kind of, you know, it's the wander on the top of the hills on, on their own, doing their own thing. But for Nietzsche, this is, what, this is when, you, when you actually see what, is, what he says, and, and even the term that he uses, we talk about good Europeans. It's, it's a plural. It's supposed to be a, a, there's supposed to be a communal kind of aspect. People will come together and try to create new types of lives. So, of course, you know, some of them might go on their own, but 
But to think it's only about one individual and just is ubermensch, like one person who are, um, you know, ubermensch, depending on you translate it, is, can be over humanity, right? It's humans. It doesn't have to be man, um, one, as in one man. Um, it, it, it doesn't, in fact, that's probably a mistranslation of it. It's, you know, it's ugly in English, but it's over humanity, over overcoming humanity. Um, so that's that's not one person. That's that's a lot of people together. And so the communal aspect, I think, is important and sometimes overlooked. Um, which means that um, you know, going back to your point about these different stresses, yes, there are all these different stresses, and individuals get challenged perhaps in a way that they hadn't before. But there are then these opportunities and these different communities that you can go to that can offer you um, different ways of trying to explore yourself and, and figure out who you are. And the question is, what is, what's the ratio between those communities and the other communities and how do you try to navigate that? Right. So your, uh, you have, you have a book on Nietzsche that recently came out. Can you remind me what it's called? It's called Nietzsche's Great Politics. Um, it came in, it came in, in hardback in 2016 and paperback 2018. And the point was, the, the great politics comes from Bismarck, which is Grosse Politik, right? That was his great politics of blood and iron, um, et cetera. German unification, taking, you know, that German Germany would be then a great power within the concert of Europe with uh, France and mm-hmm. the British Empire, Russia, et cetera. And, and the whole idea is one way of trying to talk about Nietzsche, because we, especially Nietzsche and politics, we tend to, when we talk about po- politics and Nietzsche, we tend to always look at it through the lenses of the 20th century, right? It's the Nazis and all that. It's like, well, Nietzsche wasn't writing in the 20th century. He was writing in the 19th century, the end of the 19th century. The main person there is really, for his own time, is Bismarck. So what is he saying about business politics? And he says quite a lot, actually, and he's quite critical of it. He says, no, no, it's not It's not great politics, not gross politics. It's actually an example of petty politics for the reasons I gave you earlier. Fragmentism, fragmentary, nihilism, um, nationalism, etc. But on that basis, then he said, "No, but we should try to think about what a great politics for Europe would actually be." Um, so, the, hence, hence, hence the hence the title of, of the book uh, that tries to explore that. We have the view that uh, you know, well, we, there is he does say certain things about politics. This is the context when it is said. This is the relationship to, or this is some of the ways you can think about the relationship with his philosophical ideas, and maybe that gives us a bit of a kernel of thinking about Nietzsche and politics. Um, hopefully. Not necessarily a new kernel, but a kernel of, of, around which we can organize those thoughts rather than always think, oh, Nietzsche, Nazis, that's it. Uh, try to change the point of that discussion. Right. This book was actually, you've had a couple of conversations with presses that aren't normally interested yeah. in academic books, right? But uh, which I'm very grateful is how I found you and then read it in an academic context. Um, but that's because they identified that this is actually an important conversation to be having for the modern world. So are there ways that we haven't touched on yet that these sort of reflections that you do about Nietzsche and Bismarck are relevant or can help us reframe or we rethink the sort of movements that we're seeing happening in our political landscape today? Yeah, I mean, I think I already mentioned the kind of alt-right Richard Spencer thing. So um, I, I don't think I'll go back down that uh, lane. There was some other stuff about, um, you know, the, the populist moment, um, Trump. How can we can we think about it? Because a lot of people have talked about, well, is a lot of the vote, um, is a lot of Trump's vote based on a certain resentment, right? And once you talk about resentment, then, you know, Nietzsche is not very far from the conversation once you have those kind of uh, references. And yes, there's obviously ways in which resentment can be can can help you understand some of what's going on, because a lot of it is a bit of that what we've just been talking about. A lot of it has seems to be a bit about you know, turning the clock back, trying to go back to something that was before. There's a bit of nostalgia for the past. Um, you know, in the UK, a lot of the Brexit vote seems to be about you know the British Empire and all these types of things going back to then when we were independent from Europe. So a lot of it's about turning turning the clock back, resentment vis-a-vis what happened at time. And that, so, you know, when we, when you know a bit of Nietzsche, that, I think that can help you understand um, what's going on there. The other thing that was interesting was um, um, trying to think about how do you articulate the kind of Trump as a figure through some of the figures that you have in Nietzsche. And one of the ones that came to my mind, which I thought was kind of amusing, but perhaps made, made, made a point, was that um, 
at the beginning of Zeus spoke Zarathustra. Zarathustra, has, having spent you know X amount of years in this cave thinking about philosophy, decides, okay, I know what I, I, I know what I want to say now, and rejoins humanity and comes down from the cave, down the mountain, back into the marketplace again, and tries you know tries his new philosophical ideas and starts spouting his theories and. Everybody, so he's trying to teach the Ubermensch, and everybody looks at him, going, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" And they think it's a bit of a joke. Um, and then he realizes, "Oh, this isn't working. I'm going to do the opposite. Instead of teaching the Ubermensch, I'm going to teach the opposite figure, the last man." And he says, "Look, I'll give you the last man. The last man is the person who just wants everything to be like stay the way it is. Just wants comfort. Doesn't want to be challenged, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And they love it. They lap it up. They think it's wonderful. They're like, "Yes, that's what we want. That's what he wants." Which is exactly obviously what the opposite of Zarathustra. And, but, um, so, um, but I was thinking, well, you know, is, is that, even though sorry, this is obviously not what Zarathustra wants, nor indeed what Nietzsche was kind of advocating, is that kind of demagogic kind of like speaking to the masses, giving them what they want, playing in those types of values and those types of fears, talking to the values of the last man, is that one way to try to capture what Trump was doing, actually, because some of these discussions came out, the book came out in 2016. And I think, you know, I think there was something, it did give you a certain insight there in terms of trying to characterize some of these values like the ones they associate with the last man, the last human being, all the elements of resentment that goes with it that seems to be driving a lot of this politics. Um, and also then the demagogical kind of counter, counter, counter to what you really, what he wanted, the demagogic aspect of Zarathustra speaking to the, speaking to the masses and to the crowds and peddling this kind of theory, which is the opposite of what he wants. And this clear rejection of the, of the Ubermensch, whether that was helpful as a way of trying to think about it. There's lots of ways of doing it, of course, but trying to, does it give you certain insights as to what was going on? And hopefully last man heard morality um, resentment does help give you certain views of trying to understand that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's, I think that's incredibly important. And when we look at a figure like Nietzsche, who is writing 150 years ago now, right. Mm. Uh, you realize that these, you know, I don't want to say that history is important because we need to look back and see how it repeats itself. But there is a sense in which we learn that, Oh, okay. Human fear it does often, you know, is often associated with looking back and longing for, you know, previous stability or previous greatness or what have you. And we are embedded in this discourse in which that like is still present, right? It was present then and it's present now. And it will probably remain present unless we figure out what to do about it. But we haven't really. <laughs> no. And I, yeah, I don't know if we ever will. Um, but yes, and it's it's that whatever that thing is, yes, manifests itself in, in different ways. And Nietzsche was aware of it as in, in his time. Um, and I think that's obviously, you know, Nietzsche's writing in the nineteenth century, the world is, is quite different in, in, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, there are you can see the continuities. And and I think that's what's great with, with Nietzsche is that was it the kind of intellectual tools he fashioned for himself to try and understand the world he was living in? whether those tools can still be useful for us today. I mean, we need to apply them ourselves. And obviously, we, you know, we don't have the type of intellect that Nietzsche had, but he, he, his legacy in many ways, as opposed to always thinking his legacy is going to be the Nazis, etc. It's like, well, no, there's all, these, there's all these great theories and these great notions, death of God, herd and master morality, etc. Do they still capture um, you know, the world we live, or at least the extent of, and give us insight into the world we live in today? And the answer to that, I, would, I think, is yes. Um, and then see what the, what the type of parallel is. As you say, yeah, fear is never going to go away. There's never going to be, there's never going to be, not be people who want to go back to a golden age, which was meant to be better. Those, that's just going to keep coming back and back. Dude, I was always going to say the eternal return of fear. Um, right. But, um, if that's it, you know, and and I don't, and Nietzsche wouldn't. I think, interestingly too, I don't think Nietzsche would want to say we, the aim is to try to get rid of that. That's as absolutist as what he's what he's arguing against. The thing is to try to understand what it is and try to figure out well how can how can how can it be tamed in a certain way or how can it be made in a slightly productive, which goes back to these articulation between the two. You know, Nietzsche spent a lot of time. There's often when we talk about Nietzsche and even in contemporary political theory, talk about the agon. That's become quite agonistic politics. Um, that's become quite something where the idea is conflict between different groups of people. Um, and Nietzsche, there's a there's a there's a kind of canon of of agonistic thinkers of which Nietzsche features, but there's also Hannah Arendt, 
and even sometimes Carl Schmidt. Um, um, and Nietzsche's in there. And but you know, if you look at it from that perspective, Nietzsche has a clear view because it's, it's a lot of work on the ancient Greek agon. He says, well, you know, that was a structure that existed within which, even though there was competition, it was tried to be geared towards um, the better of the whole. Um, and that's a different perspective to some contemporary agonistic um, theorists who think it must do with mutual respect um, and these elements. Nietzsche, mutual respect, that wasn't really what he was thinking about. He wasn't thinking about individual values within, between the between those people who were, who were going up against one another, rather than the structure which kind of made people interact in a certain way. And that's how, you know, I think that's still helpful to try to think about, well, should we these things exist, but can you challenge them and you can channel them in a certain way? The whole idea of, of Nietzsche of, you know, become who you are, um, or, or is to say, well, of course, nobody's, there's all, there's ugly parts and there's, and there's nice parts of everybody. And his whole idea was to say, well, can you put that into an overall whole, which is beautiful and put the ugly with the good that's valid at the individual level. It's probably valid at the kind of I don't know, group level, whichever nation level, whatever you want to put it um, to. So these are all views, these are all kind of insights that he had from the work that he did that I think when we think about them can still help us help us think about our own politics today. I Yes, thank you. I think that's a really good note to end on. And I am personally grateful because I think I need to apply more of that agonistic lens to my own thinking about what to do about the death of God and work in the modern spiritual landscape. So, um, yeah, thank you from me personally and, um, from everybody listening. Yeah. I, um, this has been wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Um, is there, do you have a Twitter? Is there anywhere people can like find you? Yes, I do have a Twitter, uh, Hugo Droshen. I think it's at H Droshen. I'm on Twitter. Yes. I tweet sometimes, not always greatly, but I, I do a bit of that social engagement. Yeah. Yes, lovely. It's funny uh, when I interview people, you know, in in other parts of the world. They're like, "Yes, here's my Instagram and my Facebook and my Twitter and uh, my Pinterest." But academics, I always just ask Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. I'm on yeah. Facebook too. Um, okay. that's, that's fine. But I know I've I've resisted Instagram so far. I have to say. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a whole other beast, and I'll complain yes. about it after we hang up. So, um, okay. <laughs> thank you, Hugo, and thank no. you, every- <laughs> thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, please do get at either one of us on Twitter or any other social media platform if you have any questions. Um, And I'm Stephanie Rubri, you know where to find me. So thank you again so much, Hugo. Um, And I will talk to everybody else next week. Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. 